This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. This week we're talking about a news item that I believe got buried in the Pope's visit to the U.S. as both were going on at the same time. We're going to be talking about the crisis, the scandal at Volkswagen. If you haven't read my column on this topic, I hope that you will. You can find it at Breitbart.com, RedState.com, uh, townhall.com, and the American Spectator at spectator.org. There's a lot of links in the column that will take you to some additional material. However, if you're a regular listener to America's Voice for Energy, you know that here I like to interview the experts that either helped me shape my column or can add some additional insight to the topic of each week's column. So my first guest today is Dr. Benny Pizer, who is the director of the Global Warming Policy Forum. And if you're not on his email distribution list, I would encourage you to, to make that step, and I'll ask him to tell us about that. Because virtually every day, as, as Benny, is it every weekday? I'm sorry, I haven't said welcome to you yet, but thanks for coming back to join me today on America's Voice for Energy. My pleasure. My pleasure. And, and you send out this email alert that I was just referencing. You send that out five days a week? Yeah. Okay, right. but not, not weekends. You get to take some time off? Yeah, occasionally if it's urgent. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like I get them very frequently, but you send out a weekly email or a daily uh, email update where you uh, draw people's attention, such as myself, to news, uh, particularly European-focused, but U.S. as well, news stories out there that... Um, are connected to global warming policies. Is that, would that be an accurate description? That's absolutely right. And so I really appreciate what you do because you've, you know, many of the columns that I write on a weekly basis are because of your effort. I see the news that you send out, and I'm like, I wouldn't have known about it any other way, and such is the case for this week's column. And one of the favorite ones I wrote back in December on Germany's crazy energy policies and their increased use of coal. And this one really connects directly to that, doesn't it? Yes, it does in that um, German but European policymakers yes. in general were driving uh, their green climate policies to such an extent that they encouraged um, and incentivized uh, the buy-up of diesel cars, which resulted in Europe now, uh, on Europe's road, more than half of the cars are diesel vehicles. Now, I read that, in that's true, I read that, that, that in Europe now more than half the cars are diesel, but that in France, 80% of them are diesel. That's right, that's right. Now, interestingly, and, and while I'm on France, and I don't know where I saw this. I don't think it was in the research I did in writing my column, but I think I've saw it, seen it since then, that while smog has been greatly reduced in U.S. cities, that it has gone up in European cities, particularly Paris. Is that accurate? That's right. Not just in Paris, but most big cities, uh, as a direct result of diesel cars 
the increase of diesel cars on the roads. Yes. Really, it is a direct result of that. Now that that's oh, like yeah. true air pollution versus CO2, which we are which pro- proponents of yeah. climate change policy like to call air pollution. Correct? Yes, that's correct. Uh, the thinking was that uh, diesel cars emit less CO2, and therefore they must be better. And all the real air pollution uh, by their particles uh, was basically ignored as a result with the obsession of cutting CO2. So, you know, my premise in my column, and I, to my knowledge, no one else is saying this, although Stephen Glover in the Daily Mail came close to saying it, although uh, he, he referenced really strictly UK policies, but my premise is what we should be looking at, not that VW and probably other European car makers, not that they should be excused from this scandal uh, of what they call the defeat device, but my premise is that really government policy drove them to this. Yes, of course. It was a, it, uh, the car industry itself uh, tried to... Um, do some greenwashing in claiming that diesel cars were the solution to global warming. So it was both uh, a convenient uh, marriage of both policymakers and the car industry claiming that they had the solution to CO2 emissions, that diesel cars would be the greenest uh, on the planet and that they could then also export or sell European cars to the rest of the world on on the basis that they were ecologically clean and and a solution to CO2 emissions. And they really do, from what I've read, reduce CO2 emissions, but yet they have higher particulate emissions, which is perhaps why we're seeing the smog go up. Well, they don't reduce CO2 emissions, but uh, compared to uh, conventional um, petrol cars, they have just slightly less um, emissions than the, the conventional cars, petrol cars. So, um, and, and then because, re- because they get more miles per gallon, yes, you, that's right. you, you know, you're, but in theory, then you are reducing CO2. Yes, it was a big con, uh, and uh, it couldn't last, and now millions and millions of cars are affected and drivers are affected and they might have to repay a lot of taxes that uh, they were um, you know incentivized and they hadn't to pay but now they will have to pay so they're, they're, it's, it's a huge and growing scandal and no one uh, has any idea how much it will cost uh, the affected car industry. Do you think VW can survive this? Oh, yes. Of course, they will survive, but the brand uh, will be damaged, and all green car policies will be damaged for years to come, and people will be extremely skeptical about all policies that claim that uh, (laughs) they are solving CO2 problems. Uh, The whole attempt to greenwash an entire industry uh, will suffer and people will become much more skeptical about these PR stunts.
Now, according to the research that I did, uh, and I did a lot of research uh, in addition to the, the links that you provide to news mm -hmm. stories, mm -hmm. I went beyond that to, to write this column, that, yeah. that German Chancellor Angela, Angela Merkel uh, kind of knew this because she fought, from what I've read, the EU, they wanted higher standards, tougher, more stringent standards on um, par particulate emissions such as NOx. And she fought them on that because it was going to hurt the automobile industry in her country. Of course. Uh, Angela Merkel has for many years, and, and rightly so, uh, tried to protect the German car industry, which is at the, re at the core of, of, of Germany's industry from um, any additional regulations that would damage the industry. On the other hand, she undercut her whole uh, intention and, and uh, agenda by becoming a green uh, crusader herself. So there were two contrasting policies and two conflicting interests. And, uh, and, and that in itself should be a lesson for the rest of the Western world. Well, uh, it should, but it won't, <laughs> I know it won't, because they're, they're so driven by ideology. Hello? I, I said they're so driven by ideology. Yes, because uh, for the time being, climate change trumps everything, and uh, unfortunately, the pain will have to grow significantly before people will realize that it's not working, the policies aren't working. Now, Volkswagen has 600,000 employees worldwide, I, I learned. Um, what kind of impact do you think this is going to have? Oh, they'll have a lot of work on their hands, that's for sure, <laughs> because they have to recall millions of cars, so the, the, the workforce will be fine. <laughs> Okay. Uh, they will actually need <laughs> to hire quite a number. Of I, I think what they're going to need to hire is a whole lot of lawyers. Yeah, that as well. That as well. So it will be extremely costly for Volkswagen. It will be uh, billions and billions of dollars. Uh, in all likelihood, they will uh, survive that scandal, um, and they will uh, suffer uh, damage of their of their brand. Um, but as a company, I'm pretty sure they will survive. But the whole policy of somehow claiming that uh, cars can solve the CO2 emissions issue isn't going away. And uh, obviously, electrical cars won't uh, solve it either. I think the whole green car campaign has suffered a huge blow as a result of the diesel fiasco. I wanted. I also read, and this maybe is a little outside of your scope. And my next guest is uh, a Volkswagen owner who owns one of these cars and loves his car, and uh, but also has done a lot of work in the electricity generation sector. So we're going to kind of transition uh, in the next segment to talking about how the, the parallels to the U.S. Uh, policies on electricity generation. But I read that the, the fix, which uh, apparently is actually going to be fairly simple because it's a software tweak. It's not any device that has to be exchanged. It's a software tweak. Mm. But what I read is that it will reduce 
Um, um, gasoline mile, or not the mileage, the MPG, because it's diesel, not gasoline, but it will reduce the amount of miles a car can drive um, on a tank of diesel, and it will reduce performance. And those are the two things that have made these cars so popular. Yes. Um, I, I guess the whole diesel technology is in an existential crisis. And the question is whether the diesel technology itself can actually survive this scandal because people will be very reluctant to buy a diesel car knowing that it's actually more polluting than uh, the conventional car. Uh, and unless that can be fixed, a diesel will become, again, as it used to be, uh, the word for it, a dirty car. <laughs> yeah. Because they are more polluting than conventional cars. So that, that is a, you know, a real problem for the image of diesel cars uh, in general. Yeah. Well, we're about out of time. Do you by any chance have another, another 13 minutes to join us for a second segment and talk about what you see coming up at, in Paris? Yes, that's fine. You can, you can do that? Okay. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy with Dr. Benny Pizer. Please stay with us. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. When four members of Congress all die within four months, each of their deaths appears to be from natural causes. But when mysterious messages begin to appear in the form of quotations from long-dead revolutionary heroes, one reporter sets out to prove the existence of a serial killer. His search discovers dark secrets and an assassin shielded by people who need the very services that only he can provide. The Sun Silas Rising, a novel by Doug Dahlgren on Kindle or paperback through Amazon.com. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm your host, Marita Noon, and we're talking again for our second segment with Dr. Benny Pizer, who is the director of the Global Warming Policy Forum based in London. Is that correct, Benny? That's right. Right. So you're, you, you advise, and, you know, I talked about at the beginning of our first segment, I talked about um, your weekly e-or e daily e-alert, what you send out, whatever you call it. Um, mm. How can people get, get on your list to subscribe to that? They, it's a free newsletter. Uh, people can subscribe via our website, which is www 
thegwpf.com or Global Warming Policy Forum. If you just Google Global Warming Policy Forum, and on the website uh, is a simple um, button where you can subscribe for free for this newsletter. Okay. Well, good. Thanks. I hope our listeners will take advantage of that. I find it to be most insightful. I don't always get to, to read it. But, you know, your, what you just sent out industry is another indicator of these crazy policies that are hurting industry. And when we conclude our kind of where we were, what we were talking about, about uh, Angela Merkel in Germany and what her policies have done and how she's, she's tried to walk a, a line between pushing green policy but yet protecting the automobile industry that is so important with one in seven uh, in some way in the auto industry, and this VW scandal that we've talked about um, appears to be uh, more, far more widespread. Nothing has come out firm yet. Uh, at the time that uh, we're recording this segment, no one else has been uh, indicted or, or confirmed to be involved, but it's believed that most of the European car makers are a part of this. That's right. So tell us briefly about uh, what yeah, the steel industry uh, in in England and what what's happened because of these policies, and then I'd like to uh, transition, if we can, to, to Paris and what what you yeah. think, what you see, who follows, especially the European policies, what's going to happen uh, at the Council of Parties in in Paris in December. Okay, well. The steel industry in Britain is in a uh, severe crisis uh, for a number of reasons. Of course, uh, the um, economic downturn and uh, Chinese steel um, being dumped uh, around the world. But sure. there's another factor, which is very high energy prices for energy-intensive industries. And they, I think most people don't realize how much energy it costs it requires to produce steel. Yes, well, there are some industries, manufacturing industries and steel, aluminium uh, companies are particularly affected, or pharmaceuticals as well. They use huge amounts of energy, um, and therefore energy prices are at the very core of their business. And well, Hang on a sec. Did you say pharmaceuticals as well? Oh, yeah. Really? Chemicals. Oh, yes. Chemical industries, pharmaceutical industries require huge amounts of uh, energy. Would have never thought it takes a lot of energy to produce those little powdery pills. Well, they use a lot of chemicals which re re require a lot of heating, a lot of energy. And many of European chemical industries um, uh, are no longer investing in Europe, uh, are building their new factories in North America. Uh, where energy prices are half or a third of what they're in Europe. But uh, steel uh, plants in Britain have been closing over the last few years, and uh, just over the last week another huge old steel plant uh, has been mothballed with a loss of around 2,000 jobs. And one of the key factors uh, has been the uh, uncompetitive price of electricity in Britain, which is twice as high as in many other parts of Europe. And so there is a clear connection between uh, climate policies that have 
driven energy prices up and the closure of a number of steel plants in Britain and all over Europe steel plants are facing the same problem uh, energy prices they are no longer competitive with the rest of the world and uh, it's, it's a big problem and it's all driven by this global warming policy to eliminate coal and really all fossil fuels which include gasoline and diesel it is one factor there are other factors of course that play a role as I said the economic downturn uh, so there's too much steel around and of course the uh, heavily subsidized steel industry in China which can produce steel so much cheaper uh, than European steel so there are a number of factors but energy price is one of the factors and that has been negatively affected by policies that have driven up the price of uh, energy and it's you know that is the additional burden that makes it even less competitive yeah yeah, and we're just beginning to see that in the United States. We've had policies that were put in place years ago. I'm talking like 07, 08 years ago, but they weren't they weren't required to be implemented until recently. And so we're starting to see. I know in um, my my base of Albuquerque, New Mexico, our electricity provider PNM has recently asked for I believe it is an 18 percent increase in in r rates for electricity so we're we're certainly seeing that here but we're a little bit behind Europe Europe was ahead of us in these policies and so their their rates have gone up before ours have I believe yeah well uh, the US is obviously blessed with the shale revolution which has dramatically brought down energy prices which has allowed the administration to introduce all sorts of policies uh, that increase <laughs> the uh, price of uh, energy uh, without people feeling it immediately in their uh, pockets or right. the direct and that is because shale has had such a dramatic effect Europe doesn't have that advantage and therefore, the pain is felt immediately. Right, right. Well, I mean, Europe may have a lot of shale, but because you don't have private uh, ownership of mineral rights as we do in the United States, people are not, uh, you know, Pierre in France there is not going to give up a portion of his vineyard for drilling uh, <laughs> unless he's going to get some, some unless he's going to get rich off of it. And with isn't really the the real problem because even a landowner in Britain or in France would get uh, would, some would compensation. Yes, would be paid. Perhaps not to the same extent, but they would be paid. Uh, it is more the political opposition and the green campaign against fracking, which yeah. has blocked shale development in Europe. But uh, there is no question that people who own land. Uh, who don't own the, you know, the the resource, but the land would be paid just for a company to use their their land. Yes, so that that isn't the core problem for why shale development hasn't. So you're off. saying the core problem is really the the green policy. Political yeah, political yeah. opposition. 
So let's go to that. So we've got coming up, I mean, the thing with Volkswagen, as we started on, what you've talked about, about the steel industry, these, these are driven by um, these green policies, particularly global warming, particularly uh, designed to reduce CO2 because uh, the the uh, alarmists believe that the planet is warming as a result of increased CO2 emissions, though we find that not to be the case as we haven't had any significant warming, but yet CO2 emissions have climbed. So the, right. the countries are coming together in Paris. What can you tell us about that? Well, we obviously will have a agreement in Paris. Uh, all governments seem to be very keen to get an agreement. And it will be claimed to be a huge breakthrough and a victory, and uh, we've saved the planet. But if you read the small print, uh, you will realize that the agreement will be completely meaningless because it won't be legally binding. It won't include any binding targets. It will mean business as usual for most countries around the world. So we will have the specter of an agreement that doesn't bind any individual country to do anything, but every government will claim that they've solved the problem. Yeah, it's going to be, I mean, even China was, the president of China was in the United States this past week, and he apparently agreed to something. I, I haven't studied it, frankly, but I, he agreed to something that made uh, President Obama be able to come out with big smiles over, look what we've done yes. with China, yes. but yet we know... Uh, in Alaska, a few weeks back, there were the kind of, I forget how many countries were there. I don't know if you followed that. You maybe know it better than I do. And they were unable to come to any kind of agreement. Well, they will come to an agreement. Uh, I have no doubt about it. They, uh, over the last 20 years, they have always been at the end of a UN climate conference, been in an agreement. Yeah, they, they end after hours. They have extra sessions yeah, and yeah. put on the screws. Yes. And as I said, there will be an agreement and it will be uh, proclaimed as a huge victory. Um, but as I also said, CO2 emissions will continue to rise for decades to come. And the discrepancy between the political uh, victory acclamations and the reality that nothing really is going to change will become apparent. Uh, the green campaigners realize that already that they will be conned, um, but the, the vast majority of people are not aware of what's happening behind uh, closed doors. And so they will only realize in coming years that despite an agreement, CO2 emissions are going to continue to rise significantly. After all, all energy agencies like the International Energy Agency or the energy administration in the US or all big energy analysts are quite confident that in the next 20 or 30 years, by 2040, the global energy mix will not look that different uh, to the energy mix today. So for instance, the International Energy Agency estimates that by 2040, still about 80% of uh, energy consumption will be based on fossil fuels. So, it's not going to change, but governments will claim a breakthrough and will claim that they've now that there's now a global commitment to tackle climate change, despite the fact that it's completely meaningless. <laughs> well, I'm 
appreciate your, your insights on that as we're heading up to it. What is the date of that conference in Paris? It is going to start at the end of November and then the first two weeks of December. And you can expect a huge spectacle. Uh, it's always the same ritual. Uh, it will start very well. Then it will become deadlocked. Uh, and then five past 12, the delegates will uh, pull a white rabbit out of the hat and declare that they've solved all problems. Well, you've heard it here first on America's Voice for Energy. And uh, as, as plans uh, lead up to that, I'm sure we'll be hearing more and more about it. Dr. Benny Pizer from the Global Warming Policy Forum based in London, I appreciate you taking your time to join us today on America's Voice for Energy. We'll be right back. The United States Justice Foundation, since 1979, has been dedicated to instructing, informing, and educating the public on legal issues confronting America. That means you and me. When necessary, this nonprofit organization has had to litigate to present the constitutional view. Since 1980, USJF has submitted testimony to the U.S. Senate on all but one U.S. Supreme Court nominee. Learn more about USJF by visiting their website at www.usjf.net. Support this nonprofit as it defends our rights, our liberty, and our Constitution. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy only on America's web radio. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. Today we've been talking about the Volkswagen scandal, that Volkswagen created a software workaround that tricked the, the testing to make regulators believe that there were far less emissions than there actually were coming out of uh, the Volkswagen and Audi diesel. Now, reports indicate that this is far more widespread than just the Volkswagen brand, as uh, most of the diesels that have been tested, according to a 2014 report, 15 different diesel vehicles that were tested exceeded the uh, emissions allowances by as much as seven times. Now, I posit that the reason that they did this is because the emission standards are really unreachable in a way that, w that consumers want, because consumers love 
their Volkswagens. And so my next guest is one of those consumers who loves his Volkswagen, but he's also involved uh, in the electricity generation sector. We've got Lance Brown with us, and he is the executive director of PACE, which stands for Partnership for Affordable Clean Energy. So Lance, welcome to America's Voice for Energy once again. Always nice to talk to you, Marita. Good. Well, you know, we have so much in common in, in these issues and our, and our concern for these issues and, and our concerns for the consumer and the cost of electricity specifically to the consumer. But I wanted to have you on because when I posted a note on Facebook uh, asking my Facebook friends, are you following this VW scandal? Because I, I believe that most people weren't even aware of what's going on because of all the news about the Pope last week that, that really consumed the news cycle. I think the VW story is kind of under the radar, but you chimed in and said, yes, you're following it because you have one of those VWs. So tell us about it. Yeah, well, obviously I have a kind of a dual interest in it. I'm not only, as you mentioned, a consumer advocate who works on energy issues, but in January I bought a uh, VW Jetta diesel uh, down in Pensacola, Florida, that's a vehicle I've loved. Um, I drive the Toyota Prius uh, before that and loved it as well, but it was time to get a little bit more power. And the diesel was a great option for me. Um, I really enjoyed driving it over the last, you know, eight, nine months. Um, but I was obviously shocked, as a lot of people were, uh, when the scandal came out about the emissions. It made it even more ironic because Pace has just started a pilot program allowing college students to emissions test their vehicles. So there's a lot of intersections between my professional work and my personal driving, and so I'm following the story very closely. Now, I know of other people that drive these Volkswagens. I, I don't personally never have driven one, and, and they really love it. They think it's a great car, gets great mileage, and has great performance. It was almost one of these too-good-to-be-true scenarios for me, and, and maybe that was foreshadowing. <laughs> but in, in the Prius, you know, I was getting, you know, about 50 miles per gallon, the problem was, um, if you're a fan of, of powerful vehicles, that's not really going to be your vehicle. Uh, my friend used to call it the glorified golf cart, and in a lot of ways it kind of was. You had to drive it very responsibly. It didn't get a lot of pickup if you're trying to pass them on the interstate. But the, the diesel Jetta is not like that at all. I mean, this is a powerful vehicle. Um, I'm, I'm getting well over 40 miles a gallon most of the time. Uh, of course, it is diesel fuel. Uh, but, again, it's kind of that too good to be true, and, and now we kind of know why, uh, because, you know, in order to, uh, to uh, get that kind of miles per gallon, you have to kind of trick the emissions control technology. So that's the kind of thing. You know, I have another friend who also owns a VW Jetta, and she's concerned uh, that if she takes it in for the recall, she's going to lose performance and lose MPG. So it's, just, it's really not a good situation for anyone who's bought a Volkswagen in the last, you know, couple of years. Well, actually, I think it's been a, since '07, according to my research, and my research also says that you will have reduced performance and uh, reduced MPG if you do the the fix. I mean, and and for our listeners, the fix is is a software upgrade or update. Basically, it's not like there's when they talk about the so-called defeat device. It's not a black box or an ignition control or anything like that. It's apparently in the software and. One might ask, well, if they can come out with a fix so easily, because Volkswagen has said we will have a fix shortly, why did they not do that in the first place? And I believe, based on the research that I've done, 
that um, the reason they didn't do it is because they w they couldn't produce a car the consumers would love like they do and have it meet the emissions controls because apparently uh, MPG will be down and performance will be down. Right. I mean, it's kind of like you and I have talked about before. There, there is this moment of diminishing returns where when you try to be everything to everyone, you do sacrifice quality and you do sacrifice performance. So it's going to be very difficult, you know, not just in the automotive sector, but in the utility sector, to continue to provide the level of service when there are ever-increasing levels of regulation and control. Well, you've provided me with a perfect segue there. So let's go there because I see a real parallel uh, to this VW scandal because, well, I'm sure, you know, you, you have to ask yourself, why did the largest car maker in Europe, a car maker who was gaining market share for these popular cars, why did they take this giant risk that is going to cost them untold billions of dollars and I think has a chance of, of uh, really uh, killing the entire company, though my previous guest, Dr. Benny Pizer from the Global Warming Policy Forum, says, oh, no, VW will survive. They'll survive. But if they'll be severely, the brand will be severely damaged. So you have to ask, why did they take this risk? And my answer, I believe at least in part, although I know many of our listeners may be shouting at the radio saying, well, corporate greed, corporate greed. And I'm sure there is some of that there is a public company, they have a responsibility to their shareholders to, to turn a profit, and the more profit uh, the company makes, the better the share, better off the shareholders are. But I think the bigger story is what we've talked about is that we have regulations that have been um, passed that just plain cannot be met by current technology. And I think that's where we are with uh, the clean power plan that we passed here in the United States. Yeah, you know, you can never quickly excuse bad behavior from any corporation. Uh, but at the same time, I'm a big believer that there, there are – it's not really a matter of bad apples all the time. It's sometimes it's bad barrels. And we're really creating a bad barrel uh, in the utility sector uh, by the amount of regulation that's coming down from D.C. I mean, we're, we're probably going to see sometime in the future, um, you know, some kind of – of scandal or something like that in the electricity sector just because you have companies trying to provide the same level of service in an environment that doesn't allow them the same generation capabilities. So, you know, we're going to see this kind of stuff in the future, and it's not a product of, of always just great. It's sometimes a product of trying to meet your customer demands in a different kind of environment. Yeah, I think your Prius versus diesel Jetta example is a good one. I mean, what President Obama is pushing will be Prius-style electricity, and what we're accustomed to is Jetta. We're accustomed to having the lights on when we want them. We're accustomed to being able to run our air conditioners all day long in the in the heat and our heaters all all night long in the in the cold and so forth. Uh, oh and, and, and but that's not going to be the future. Yeah, the, the, the Prius is kind of the, the rolling brownout with four wheels. You know, it's, 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 it's the compromise that you have to make if you want that kind of environmental control, uh, but also the ability to be on the road. I've never driven either the Prius or the Jedi. Maybe you should get out and do that. But what do you see, you know, when, when we talk about the electricity sector and the comparison uh, to these policies, what do you see coming down the pike for specifically the clean power plan, but, but anything else? And we've got the methane regs and the ozone regs, and the, the, the regulations just keep piling on and piling on. 
Yeah, well, you know, the clean power plan, we're, we're kind of in that phase where we're waiting for states or, or multi-state regions to come back with uh, an implementation plan where, where they're saying, we know what the, the goals are that EPA has set, now how are we going to try to meet those? And I think a lot of the public is going to be surprised when these implementation plans come down because they're going to require significant changes uh, in the portfolio from, from their trusted providers. But it's not just a clean power plan. This is a you know, very timely conversation because we're expecting ozone regulations to be released sometime next week. Right. Uh, and that's, that's a perfect fit for the conversation we're having because what EPA has done, you know, right now we're at a threshold of 75 parts per billion for ozone. The EPA is expected to come down to 70, 65. Some people have even speculated as low as 60. Don't think that will happen. But even at 70 or 65, you are reaching a level of almost background ozone. Uh, yeah, I, I understand that. I understand that with the, the new ozone regs, that there will be some national parks which will be out of compliance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there are parts of the country that there is no way to get under the the, the new threshold. If it's 65 parts per billion, that's just going to be unattainable. And and for people who hear the the national park argument and just look at that as rhetoric or or you know, just something fanciful that we're throwing out there. I'll give you a better example. Uh, there is an area of West Alabama that is basically a bunch of pine trees, and there's a monitor along the Mississippi border that is not going to comply with a standard of 65 parts per billion. So this is real life. There's going to be real communities affected by this, and you're going to be left with local officials that have absolutely no ability to meet this new standard. Now, I've not followed the ozone regs closely. Obviously, I'm aware of them because I know about the National Park story. But, you know, what what all does this impact? Well, if you don't meet the threshold, if, you're, if your community does not meet the threshold, there's a litany of, of possible consequences, the first of which is any new air permitting that happens uh, could be impossible if you're in non-attainment. So, you know, Birmingham, Alabama went this, through this for a long time. It's a community with a lot of ozone problems due to topography and just kind of the history of the city. And that means really no new economic development in that region because you can't have air permits that make the ozone problem worse. So not only do you have economic development implications, but you also have road funding from the federal government, uh, some other restrictions. Plus it's a very expensive process. If you have to get together as a community and figure out ways to mitigate ozone, there's a lot of red tape, a lot of coordination that has to happen. And, uh, you know, we, we did an interview not too long ago with a county commissioner in Baldwin County, Alabama, which is the Gulf Coast, who told us, you know, I can make everybody in the county ride bicycles, but we're not going to meet the new ozone standard. So this is the kind of hurdle that, that local officials are going to face. Yeah, and, and, you know, and as I to draw the parallel back to the Volkswagen story, I mean, that's, that's I think, kind of what they're facing. They were faced with we can't produce a car the consumer wants to buy that meets these regulations, and in Europe in particular, with the diesels, they were so concerned with lowering CO2 that the, the diesels actually do uh, reduce, they emit less CO2, in part because diesel, as I understand, itself has less carbon, but also because you get more MPG, so therefore you have all these cars on the road going the same distance, but using less fuel and therefore less CO2. So all of this is driven by these policies to reduce CO2 because it is believed that CO2 is, is responsible for the demon so-called man-made global warming. 
Yeah, and as, as you and I talked about in the past, you know, Europe is kind of the the ten year time machine for the U.S. You know, just look to Europe; you're going to see the policies that are going to come here in five to ten years. You're also going to see the consequences. Uh, you know, and and just this morning, I read a story about the state of Georgia considering a carbon trading plan. You know, and this is directly as a as a result of the clean power plan. So we're already yeah. seeing states having to look at European designs for carbon, which I think only spells disaster for, for U.S. consumers. Yeah, and, and they've been a failure in Europe. We're out of time. Lance Brown, thanks for joining us today on America's Voice for Energy. We'll be right Take back. Take care. Thank you. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory, ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government, as well as those involved in legal cases, have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome to our closing segment of America's Voice for Energy. We've had a great show today, and we're going to continue. We're talking about the Volkswagen scandal and really what precipitated that. And as we've discussed, the bottom line is that this is all due to excessive and really unattainable regulations dealing with the belief that global warming is caused by humans burning fossil fuels that emit CO2. And so when you think of global warming and and that whole topic, I hope that the Heartland Institute comes to your mind because they are really the leaders, I believe, in helping to combat the, the faulty messaging that is coming out of the UN and the alarmists and their camp. So I'm delighted to have back with us once again for our closing segment, Sterling Burnett from the Heartland Institute. So, Sterling, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on again, Marita. 
Yeah, I know. It's it's kind of like we need to just schedule you on a regular basis. But, but, you know, you're such a wealth of knowledge on the whole regulatory process. Uh, and then um, with your work with the Heartland Institute on global warming, a.k.a. climate change, and specifically what's believed to be the man-made uh, element of that. So I wanted to kind of wrap up our show today talking with you because – that I believe that these silly regulations are what drove VW to try to come up with a workaround that they could sell a car that the public wants and that also meets the demands. And interestingly, our previous guest is an owner, uh, Lance Brown, owns a VW diesel Jetta and loves the car, and he said he used to own a Prius. And, you know, well, it got great gas mileage. It just really didn't have the power. And so we kind of compared in our last segment the um, President Obama's clean power plan is kind of more like the Prius, where what we have now is more like uh, his turbo diesel. And But yet, well, it ha- he loves it. It has great power. It's not going to meet the re- – it doesn't meet the requirements. And I think our current – uh, electricity expectations will no longer meet the requirements. Do you agree? Well, uh, yeah, there's no question. The clean power plan, when it comes into full effect, it's going to end up closing hundreds of power plants prematurely, coal-fired power plants primarily, but not only. And that means that you've lost a lot of investment in capital. But the nuclear energy, I mean, not the nuclear energy, the federal electricity, uh, Energy Regulatory Commission has said, they, you know, they've been very clear on this uh, for a number of years. They've written study after study. They've testified before Congress that the Clean Power Plan, along with other rules that the Obama administration has implemented, threaten the reliability of America's electric power grid because you're taking too much reliable power offline before new power has been built to replace it, and that new power is going to be variable, uh, intermittent uh, green energy, wind and solar, which can't replace base load power. And so, you know, FERC has been clear. Uh, The other regulatory bodies that deal with the electric power grid have been clear that this is a threat to our power grid. And the Obama administration, you know, just like it has blinders on, continues to put out these regulations that their own uh, federal bodies say threaten to leave us in the dark. Yeah, it's amazing. And these federal agencies that you're referring to, their mandate is to keep the power grid reliable, to keep the energy on for Americans. That's it. They're not politicized. I mean, they can be politicized. Any agency can be, but they're not politicized. They've got a, a goal. Their mandate, like you say, is to to maintain the reliability of America's electric grid with a safety margin. So you've always got something back there if one unit fails or if one section of the, you know, if transformers fail, if wires go down. Their federal mandate is to keep the power on. And they're telling the EPA, they're telling the Energy Department, they're telling the President that his plans, their clean power plan, their other rules, the mercury and air toxics rules, other rules, uh, threaten that reliability, that they can't do their job because of other things that the administration is doing. You know, and uh, it, it's and just, we've got the ozone regs coming out this week. 
the, the ozone's just pile on. It's it's like uh, you, when you you played uh, football as a kid and someone got tackled and everybody is a pile on, and that's all this is. It's just one more body. I mean, body. It's like you know, they're like corpses just fall on on <laughs> what little what little uh, uh, freedom and uh, living in this case energy producers we have. They're just uh, throwing dead body after dead body because that's what these rules are. <laughs> what do you see? Is... Go ahead. Can I say something about the the Volkswagen thing? Sure. Of um, you know, I, I missed I missed your earlier segment, but. I wanted to say that this, the Obama administration can be blamed for a lot, but Volkswagen goes back much farther than the Obama administration. It goes back to the 70s when uh, Richard Nixon, you know, when we created the Energy Department after Richard Nixon, when, when, when they did price controls, when we first started to decide that we knew what kind of fuel economy America's cars could have, because government always knows best, and People were happy with their cars, but government decided, no, no, you've got to get more fuel economy because they were worried about imported oil. They were worried about energy independence, and they wanted us to get more miles per gallon so we would use less gas. Guess what? It backfired. By getting more miles per gallon, making it made it cheaper to drive, and people drove more miles. And we're driving more miles now and using more fuel now than we were before the fuel economy standards. And they keep giving these rationales for these crazy standards that force us into cars that we wouldn't choose otherwise. And the only good, I mean, the only reliable end result that we can count on, the only thing that you can really measure that these fuel economy standards have done is the number of lives, the number of lives that have been taken prematurely because to meet these standards, they have reduced the size, the weight, the metal content in cars, and that's made them less safe to drive. Ralph Nader recognized this. Uh, USA Today recognized this. Harvard, Brookings Institution, they've all done studies showing the EPA's corporate average fuel economy standards kill people. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that up because I was going to address that very as you launched into your 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 comments on the fuel standards. I was going to address that very thing about the lives that have been lost. And in fact, I did mention the CAFE standards, the corporate average fuel economy standards, in my first segment today as another one of these regulations that just cannot be met. And they're achieving this meeting of the corporate average fuel economy, which is known as the CAFE standards. And people don't necessarily understand when President Obama came out, and I don't know if you know Sterling, and he said we're, we have to have an average of 50 miles per gallon by when is it that's supposed to be? I think it's after he's out of office, isn't it? It is. It is. My suspicion yeah. is that, uh, that, that they will uh, reduce that goal because a, it may be impossible to meet and still provide a car that people in America want to drive. Let's face it, even the Europeans... Well, that's part of why I understand. That's part of why they continue to produce the Volt. <laughs> and Americans don't want to drive the Volt. See, that's the point. No, it's, but they produce the it end, because... But they produce the Volt, even though nobody's buying it, not nobody, but there are very few, it, it has not sold anywhere near what the expectations are, and they lose money on every Volt they sell. But by having the Volt as a part of the fleet, 
it compensates for the pickup trucks that Americans like to drive, for example, that get higher MPG. So in a way, you know, the Volt is kind of like the Volkswagen, even though people love the Volkswagen and people don't love the Volt in mass quantity. Some people do. But um, but it's a workaround. The Volt is a workaround. It's a way to allow the manufacturer to get around the um, – the regulations, the regulations that you have to have a certain MPG, which is not technologically possible in producing a car consumers want to buy. And that's where well, the Volkswagen yeah, thing, that, that's, that's why the, the Volt is made. I, no, I agree with you, that's why the Volt is made. But over time, you still have to sell enough Volts to balance out the number of uh, gasoline-powered cars that don't meet the standard or your fleet average is not met. And they won't sell enough folks to meet a 50-mile-per-gallon standard. Yeah. And that's going to be the problem. And, that's the problem. And, and, that's, and the Volt is just one manufacturer. Other manufacturers don't even have that. So, now, do you know offhand, I've heard that this is part of why Tesla is sort of successful, because where the real success comes is in selling these, like, carbon credits, although I don't think they're really carbon credits, to these car manufacturers that allow them, again, kind of a workaround, to say, oh, well, you know, because of the Tesla, we're... do you have any clue on that? No, I don't know much about the carbon credits that Tesla's selling because there's no, there's no legal carbon cap-and-trade mandate yet. So if they're selling carbon credits, it's not something issued by the government that somehow gets the manufacturers legally off the hook to meet the standard. Well, yeah, Tesla's I just heard success. something on that. I, I, I haven't really followed it. Tesla's success is for one reason and one reason only, because the government continues to throw money at Tesla. Yes. You know, and they continue to throw money at Tesla because yeah. of these these unmeetable standards. Yeah, because but, they demand these electric cars. And the, and the funny thing is, you know, Tesla has now for 10 years promised they would have an electric vehicle that the average man can buy, something the average person can afford. Because you don't, you know, the, the whole the whole goal, like you say, is meeting greenhouse gas emission limits, cutting greenhouse gas emissions. Well, if you just sell to the 1% and only a portion of the 1%, you're not going to reduce the vehicle fleet's carbon carbon dioxide emissions. You have to get, the, get these cars in the hands of the average guy, the mass of people. Yeah. And so for 10 years they promised that, and yet every time they come out with a new model, it's one that only the wealthy can afford. Despite, yeah, all the the, despite all the subsidies. Now, we've got one minute left, Sterling. We've got the uh, Paris Climate Change Conference coming up in uh, uh, December. What do you think is going to happen? They'll come out with another empty agreement. Every climate conference comes to an agreement. There'll be last-minute wrangling. They'll come out with an agreement, and it won't really do much. The last few have been, you know, it's like they've basically been commitments to go forward to do something. And that's what they'll do here because – you know, they may come out with something stronger. I could be wrong. Obama may give away the House. The Chinese may pretend that they're really caving in. But India and developing countries, they basically said, we need money. You promised money. Show us the money. And yeah. Obama can't go there and show them any money because Congress has to approve any money, and he can't get them to do it. So my suspicion is they come out with a very empty going forward, let's meet next year and decide something. Uh, but if they come out with anything strong, it really doesn't matter much because Obama's not going to be around in another year and a half. And the next president, 
Congress is not going to approve anything he signs. And the next president, uh, if it's if it's you know someone from the Democratic Party, they're still going to have to get approval from Congress. And yep. if it's someone from the Republican Party, my suspicion is they withdraw us. Yep. I assume so. We're out of time, Sterling. Thanks for giving us your insights today on uh, on these issues and appreciate talking with you. Thanks for having me, Rita. Take care. Great. Please join us next week for another edition of America's Voice for Energy on America's Web Radio.